trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast. This is your host, Paul. This is episode 140, and this week's show is entitled The Forgotten Fire. But first up, a lovely article from the www.bbc.com website Recreating the Sweet Smell of Whale Poo, and it's written by Philip Ball. Smelling, as the New York Times put it in 1895, like the blending of new-mown hay, the damp woodsy fragrance of a fern copse, and the faintest possible perfume of the violet. The aromatic allure of ambergris is not difficult to understand. In the Middle East it is an aphrodisiac, in China a culinary delicacy. King Charles II is said to have delighted in dining on it mixed with eggs. Around the world it has been a rare and precious substance, a medicine and, most of all, a component of musky perfumes. You'd never think it started as whale faeces, and smelling like it too. As Herman Melville said in the compendium of all things cetacean, Moby Dick, It is ironic that fine ladies and gentlemen should regale themselves with an essence found in the inglorious bowels of a sick whale. But vats of genetically modified bacteria could one day be producing the expensive aromatic chemical craved by the perfume industry if research reported by biochemists at the Swiss Fragrance and Flavouring Company Fermenic in Geneva comes to fruition. The results are another demonstration that rare and valuable complex chemicals, including drugs and fuels, can be produced by sophisticated genetic engineering methods that convert bacteria into microscopic manufacturing plants. Made from the indigestible parts of squid eaten by sperm whales, and usually released only when the poor whale dies from a blocked and ruptured intestine and has been picked apart by the sea scavengers, ambergris matures as it floats in the brine from a tarry black dung to a dense pungent grey substance with the texture of soft waxy stone. Because ambergris needs this period of maturation in the open air it couldn't be harvested from live sperm whales even in the days when hunting was sanctioned. It could be found occasionally in whale carcasses. In Moby Dick, the Pequod's crew trick a French whaler into abandoning a whale corpse so that they can capture its ambergris. But most finds are fortuitous, and as was reported recently, large pieces of ambergris washed ashore can be worth many thousands of dollars. The perfume industry has long accepted that it can't rely on such a scarce, sporadic resource, and so it has found alternatives to ambergris, that smell similar. One of the most successful is a chemical compound under the trademarked name of Ambrox, which was devised by Ferminix fragrance chemists in the 1950s and featured, I am told, in Dolce & Gabbana's perfume Light Blue. One perfume website describes it with characteristically baffling hyperbole as follows, You're hit with something that smells warm oddly mineral and sweetly inviting. Yet it doesn't exactly smell like a perfumery or even culinary material. It's perfectly abstract, approximating a person's aura rather than a specific component. 
To create Ambrox, chemists start with a compound called Scladiol, named after the southern European herb Salvia Scladia, or clary sage, from which it is extracted. In other words, to mimic a sperm whale's musky ambergris, you start with an extract of sage. This is par for the course in the baffling world of the human sense of smell, or as scientists call it, olfaction. In this case, ambrox has a very similar structure to the main smelly molecules in ambergris. But this doesn't always have to be so. Two odorant molecules can smell almost identical, while having very different molecular structures. They are all generally based on frameworks of carbon atoms linked into rings and chains. Equally, two molecules that are almost identical, even mirror images of one another, can have very different odours. Quite how such molecules elicit a smell when they bind to the proteins in the olfactory membrane of the nasal cavity is still not understood. Back to ambergris. Clary sage is easier to get hold of than whale faeces, but even so the herb contains only tiny amounts of scladiol, and it is laborious to extract and purify. That's why Fermanix Michael Schulk and his colleagues wanted to see if they could take the scladiol-producing genes from the herb and put them in the gut bacterium Escherichia coli, the ubiquitous single-celled workhorse used by the biotechnology industry for cloning genes and expressing therapeutically useful products. Scladiol belongs to a class of organic compounds called terpenes, many of which are strong-smelling and are key components of the essential oil extracts of plants. Scleriol contains two rings of six carbon atoms each, formed when enzymes called diterpene synthases stitch together parts of a long chain of carbon atoms. The fermentic researchers show that the formation of scleriol is catalyzed in two successive steps by two different enzymes. Schalk and colleagues extracted and identified the genes that encode these enzymes and transplanted them into E. coli. That alone, however, doesn't necessarily make the bacteria capable of producing lots of scladiol. For one thing, it also has to be able to make the long-chained starting compound, which can be achieved by adding yet another gene from a different species of bacteria that happens to produce the stuff naturally. More challengingly, all of the enzymes have to work in sync, which means giving them genetic switches to regulate their activity. This approach, making sure that the components of a genetic circuit work together, like the parts of a machine, to produce the desired chemical product, is known as metabolic engineering. This is one level up from genetic engineering, tailoring microorganisms to carry out much more demanding tasks than those possible by simply adding a single gene. It has already been used to make bacteria produce other important natural compounds, such as the anti-malarial drug artemisinin. With this approach, the Fermanic team was able to create an E. coli strain that could turn cheap abundant glycerol into significant quantities, about 1.5 grams per litre, of scleriol. So far this has just been done at a small scale in the lab. If it can be scaled up, you might get to smell expensively musky without the expense. Or at least, you would if the price did not, in the perfume business, stand for an awful lot more than mere production costs. If you listen to the last Mysteries Abound podcast, you may have got the impression that I'm a little obsessed with sex in that podcast, as I did a couple of stories along those lines. Well, to keep that obsession going, I have another one. And this one I find quite fascinating. It's an article by Matt Soniak from the mentalfloss.com website. And did you know that cornflakes were invented as part of an anti-masturbation crusade? Believe it or not. 
In the 18th and 19th centuries, the Western world worked itself up into a mass hissy fit over the idea of people touching themselves. Judeo-Christian tradition had already been damning masturbation as a misuse of sexuality for ages. But Victorian-era prudishness and the Great Awakening and other religious revivals in America created a perfect storm for people to really get obsessed with it. Books like the anonymously authored Ononia or The Heinous Sin of Self-Pollution and All Its Frightful Consequences and Samuel Tissot's Treatise on the Diseases Produced by Onanism, Masturbation, laid the groundwork for medicalizing the solitary vice. Soon, masturbation was no longer just a moral failing, but also a physical and mental ailment that required treatment and cures. In the young United States, one of the most ardent anti-masturbators was a Michigan physician named John Harvey Kellogg. The good doctor was a bit uncomfortable about sex, thinking it detrimental to physical, emotional and spiritual well-being. He personally abstained from it and never consummated his marriage, and may have actually spent his honeymoon working on one of his anti-sex books. He and his wife kept separate bedrooms and adopted all of their children. Sex with your wife was bad, but masturbation was even worse. If illicit commerce of the sexes is a heinous sin, Kellogg wrote, self-pollution is a crime doubly abominable. In Plain Facts for Old and Young, Embracing the Natural History and Hygiene of Organic Life, He catalogued 39 different symptoms of a person plagued by masturbation, including general infirmity, defective development, mood swings, fickleness, bashfulness, boldness, bad posture, stiff joints, fondness for spicy foods, acne, palpitations and epilepsy. Kellogg's solution to all this suffering was a healthy diet. He thought that meat and certain flavourful or seasoned foods increased sexual desire, and that plainer food, especially cereals and nuts, could curb it. While working as the superintendent at Michigan's Battle Creek Sanitarium, he hit upon a few different healthy eating ideas. Two became breakfast staples, and one, thankfully, didn't. Early in his tenure at the sanitarium, Kellogg created a health treat for the patients that consisted of oatmeal and cornmeal baked into biscuits and then ground into tiny pieces. He called it granula. This was maybe the worst name imaginable, since a very similar product with the exact same name was already being made and sold by James Caleb Jackson, another dietary reformer. Under the threat of a lawsuit, Kellogg changed the name of his creation to Granola. Another of Kellogg's dietary innovations developed to ensure clean intestines was an enema machine that ran water through the bowel and then followed it with a pint of yogurt, half delivered through the mouth and the other half through the anus. This one didn't really catch on. Later, Kellogg developed a few different flaked grain breakfast cereals, including cornflakes, as healthy, ready-to-eat, anti-masturbatory morning meals. He partnered with his brother Will, the sanitarium's bookkeeper, to make and sell them to the public. Will had less interest in dietary purity and more business sense than his brother and worried that the products wouldn't sell as they were. He wanted to add sugar to the flakes to make them more palatable, but John wouldn't hear of it. Will eventually started selling the cereals through his own business, which became the Kellogg Company. The brothers continued to feud for decades after. Masturbators who enjoy cornflakes can probably attest that the sugar was a good idea, since Kellogg's cereal doesn't really have its intended effect. While cereals and yoghurt enemas might have kept most people in line, Kellogg also supported more extreme measures. Read, stuff that would get your medical licence revoked today and lead to many, many lawsuits 
for people with particularly nasty masturbation habits. For boys, he suggested threading silver wire through the foreskin to prevent erections and cause irritation. For girls, he advocated, and sometimes employed, an application of carbolic acid to the clitoris to burn it and discourage touching it. Wow, what a charming fellow. I certainly won't look at my box of breakfast cereal in the same light ever again. And if you visit the show notes at www.origins.info, click on the link to the Origins show note, and on the link to episode 140, and then on the link to this article, if you scroll down partway through the article, there is a lovely portrait of Mr. Kellogg. He seems to be very happy and smiling. Makes you wonder what he's got to smile about. Some of the Nazca lines, mysterious geoglyphs that span a vast swathe of the rugged Peruvian desert, may have once been a labyrinth with a spiritual purpose, a new study suggests. The new insight, published in the December issue of the journal Antiquity, came because two archaeologists decided to use a decidedly low-tech method to understand the sand drawing's ancient secrets. By walking it. From the www.msnbc.msn.com website, an article by Tina goes. Peru's mysterious Nazca lines form a labyrinth, says a study. At the time the Nazca lines, which span 85 square miles, were drawn, people were not looking at this stuff from the air. They were looking at stuff from a ground level, said Timothy Ingold a cultural anthropologist at the University of Aberdeen, who was not involved with the study. To appreciate what they might have meant to ordinary people, then you have to walk them. While that seems like an obvious first step, in actuality, very few archaeologists have studied the Nazca lines from that vantage point, because most of the pictures drawn out by the lines are only visible from foothills above or from space. The Nazca lines have been a mystery since they were first discovered in the 1920s by Peruvian archaeologist Toribio Meia Zespe. Long forgotten people from the Nazca culture created the drawings between 200 BC and AD 500 by brushing away the dark top layer of barren desert to reveal the light, sandy soil underneath, wrote Clive Ruggles, an archaeologist from the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom. The dry, windless climate has preserved most of the carvings. Hundreds of depictions of animal shapes, such as jaguars and monkeys, as well as geometric designs, to this day. But just why ancient people created the Nazca lines has been an enduring mystery. Some archaeologists have suggested it was an alien landing strip, a primitive sun calendar or an irrigation system. There is no simple answer. Different geoglyphs were clearly created over a significant period of time and almost certainly had a variety of meanings and purposes, Ruggles wrote. Concerns about degradation of the mysterious geoglyphs prevented most traffic through the region since the 1990s. But when Ruggles and Aberdeen colleague Nicholas Saunders came upon a previously undiscovered set of lines north of the Nazca Desert in 1984, they wondered whether the geoglyphs might reveal their secrets from a more terrestrial point of view. Starting in 2007, Ruggles and Saunders spent 150 days walking 932 miles of the ancient carvings. They found the newly undiscovered geoglyph was a single line 
but radiated out in a mystifying, confusing pattern, with a series of sharp, disorienting turns leading up to a mound whose purpose remains unknown. What's more, the meandering line was in pristine condition, leading the archaeologists to conclude that the paths that were carved out were rarely, if ever, used. Many labyrinths have a spiritual purpose, so one possibility is that the paths weren't walked at all, but instead were intended for the passage of gods or spirits, Ruggles wrote. For instance, in the 5th century BC, Herodotus mentions a vast Egyptian labyrinth that served as a mortuary temple, while the Hopi Indians saw labyrinths as symbols of Mother Earth. The researchers note this is still just speculation. We still have absolutely no idea what these people were doing or what the point of it was, Ingall said. The best contrived and noblest structure of all the East, the French mathematician Le Comte said when he saw it. Its many-coloured tiles and bricks were highly glazed, giving the building a gay and beautiful appearance, wrote an enamoured American missionary. Both of these 19th century visitors to China were referring to the astonishing tower of Nanjing, a wondrous temple that today is gone. From the www.unmuseum.org website, Seven Wonders of the Medieval World, The Porcelain Tower of Nanjing. And this story was written by Lee Christek. Construction of the Baoense, or Temple of Gratitude, started in the early 15th century. The Ming Dynasty's Yongle Emperor ordered its erection in his capital city of Nanjing, which sits on the south bank of the mighty Yangtze River. It is unclear to scholars today if the emperor built the temple to honour both his parents or just his mother. They do know that its construction took seven years. The tower rose from an octagonal base 97 feet wide and consisted of nine storeys with a total height of 260 feet. One visitor reported that there had once been plans to extend the height to 330 feet by adding four more storeys but they were never realised. Though the tower was not the tallest pagoda constructed in China, it was widely considered the most beautiful. Rather than being constructed of only wood, the walls of the temple were made of white porcelain bricks that must have glittered in the sunlight. Worked into the porcelain of the walls was a mixture of green, yellow, brown and white glazes in the designs of animals, flowers, bamboo, landscapes and Buddhist images. A visitor climbing the tower would enter the temple through a decorative archway into an octagonal shaped room, illuminated by a dozen oil-burning porcelain lamps. From there he could climb the 190 steps of the spiral staircase through each of the temple's levels. As he walked upward, the visitor would pass niches containing Buddhist statues. At each of the tower's progressively narrower stories, he would see lanterns and bells hung. One visitor counted 152 bells tinkling in the wind and 140 lamps illuminating the temple at night. Another reported that the woodwork in the temple was strong, curiously carved and richly painted. At the top, the visitor would see a pole running vertically through the final story. As the pole emerged from the roof, it turned into a spire. The spire was surrounded by iron rings set above a sphere carved into the shape of a pineapple. The tower quickly became an icon for the city and visitors from the west reported on its beauty when they returned to their homelands. A number of pagoda towers were built in Europe, including one in the Kew Gardens of London, 
probably inspired by the porcelain tower. Even today, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London houses a nine-foot-high miniature of a pagoda tower thought to be a replica of the one at Nanjing. Unfortunately, the tower did not survive the 19th century. In 1801, a bolt of lightning hit the tower, destroying the top three storeys. These were quickly rebuilt, but in 1853, Taiping rebels took control of the city. The rebels were Christians and destroyed much of the Buddhist art in the temple along with the interior staircase. The tower was still standing in May of 1854, however, when American sailors visited the city and saw it. It is believed that in 1856 the rebels finally destroyed the tower completely, either to deny its use as an observation post to their enemies or because they had a superstitious fear of it. The tower only exists today in illustrations and museum miniatures. However, in 2010, Wang Jialin, a Chinese businessman, donated 1 billion yuan, or $156 million, to the city to have the temple rebuilt. So the magnificent pagoda tower may someday once again rise above the ancient city of Nanjing and reflect the morning sun with its glittering porcelain walls. It's the confession that no excavation team ever wants to make that its search has come up empty. But for Spitfire hunters in Burma who have been on the prowl since early January for dozens of second World War era British fighter planes, that seeming admission came on Friday when archaeologists were forced to cancel a news conference after their search turned up not planes, but cables and pipes instead. From the www.guardian.co.uk website, The Spitfire Search in Burma draws a blank, and it's written by Kate Hodel. The British-led archaeology team, headed by the Lincolnshire farmer and Spitfire enthusiast David Cundall, has been on the hunt for as many as 140 fighter planes believed to have been buried in three sites around the country, with 36 of them supposedly buried close to the runway at Rangoon Airport. Armed with mechanical diggers and quite a lot of hope, the 21 archaeologists have spent the past fortnight digging up various holes around the airport looking for the giant crates, reportedly housing the planes. But all the team has found so far is bundles of electric cables and water pipes. A retired Burmese geology professor who has been involved in the Spitfire's search told the Associated Press, We haven't stopped searching and we cannot stop said Sothien. It is just a delay in our work. No map exists with the details of where exactly the planes might be. Archaeologists working on the dig, as well as a spokesman for Wargaming.net, a video games firm backing the search, have admitted there are no planes in the spots where they have been digging. However, Kundal, who has spent the past 17 years campaigning to find the Spitfires and is now leading the dig, insists that the excavation teams are looking in the wrong places. The Spitfire search was green-lighted in October after the Burmese government gave Kundal and his local partner exclusive rights to the three sites believed to house the buried Spitfires. The 62-year-old farmer is said to have begun the hunt for the planes nearly 20 years ago after overhearing American veterans mention that they had buried the planes in Burma. He has since collected various accounts from eyewitnesses, including both American and British veterans, in order to aid his search, and has been accompanied by 91-year-old Stanley Coombe, who claims he saw planes being buried in 1945, and who flew to Burma from Britain to observe the excavation. The Spitfire, a single-seat fighter plane, earned worldwide recognition for helping Britain beat back enemy bombers during the war. 
some 20,000 were built, and today as many as 140 are thought to have been buried in crates, in near pristine condition in various sites around Burma, by American engineers in 1945. It is believed that the planes were buried either to get rid of them entirely, or so that they could not be used by the Burmese independence fighters. Around one-third of the 140 planes are believed to be on the grounds of Rangoon Airport, where a ground-penetrating radar earlier revealed a heavy concentration of metals. Other Spitfires are said to be in Mayakaina in Karchin State, where another team has been digging, but whose hopes of discovery were recently dashed after a buried crate revealed so much muddy water that archaeologists said it would take weeks to pump out. Kundal has said he aims to restore any Spitfires unearthed in Burma back to flying condition in the UK. After discovering a secret hidden palace in China's first emperor's massive burial complex, Chinese technicians are nervous. Not because Qin Shi Huang's tomb is the most important archaeological discovery since Tutankhamun, but because they believe his burial place is full of deadly traps that will kill any trespassers. Not to talk about deadly quantities of mercury. From the gizmodo.com website, an article by Jesus Diaz. Archaeologists think the hidden imperial tomb may be too deadly to explore. The secret courtyard-style palace tomb is a mind-numbing discovery. Situated in the heart of the emperor's 22-square-mile mortuary compound, guarded by more than 6,000 and still counting, full-sized statues of warriors, musicians and acrobats, the buried palace is 2,263 by 820 feet. It includes 18 courtyard houses overlooked by one main building, where the emperor is supposed to be. The palace, which has already been partially mapped in 3D using volumetric scanners, occupied a space of 6,003,490 cubic feet. That's one-fourth the size of the Forbidden City in Beijing, for just one tomb. Experts believe that the 249-foot-high structure, covered with soil and kept dry thanks to a complex draining system, hides the body of the emperor and his courtiers. Nobody knows what's the state of their bodies, but one of the leading archaeologists believe that they are most likely destroyed by now. What probably are intact are the countless treasures that according to the ancient scrolls that describe the emperor's long-lost burial site, fill the interior of the tomb. And perhaps the deadly traps guarding them too. Talking to Spanish newspaper El Pais, the archaeologists working at the excavation said that it's like having a present all wrapped at home, knowing that inside is what you've always wanted, and not being able to open it. But at the same time, nobody wants to be the first to get inside because of the mausoleum's dangerous traps. They're detailed in the same texts that recount its abundant riches. It's not clear if the traps are really there, even while many texts describe them. There are no reports of traps in any tombs in any ancient culture. According to Emily Tita, University of Chicago's Oriental Institute's curator of Egyptian and Nubian antiquities, traps are a legend as much as curses. I am really sorry to report that if curses are out, then there is really nothing devious. Hollywood has turned standard architectural features like sliding portcullis blocks, shafts and sand-filled chambers into objects of horror. Sorry that the Egyptians were not more evil. 
So what about the giant stone ball that chases Indy at the beginning of the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, the ball exists, says the expert in Central American archaeology, Dr. Winifred Creamer. Costa Rica definitely had those big stone balls. The balls had ceased to be made by the time of the first Spanish explorers and remained completely forgotten until they were rediscovered in the 1940s. Many of the balls were found to be in alignments consisting of straight and curved lines as well as triangles and parallelograms. One group of four balls was found to be arranged in a line oriented to magnetic north. This has led to speculation that they may have been arranged by people familiar with the use of magnetic compasses or astronomical alignments. But let's assume that the Chinese were more evil or awesome than the Egyptians or Central American cultures and that they really installed booby traps that triggered deadly crossbows in the emperor's tomb. Even if the old Chinese texts are correct, they might now still work after 2,000 years. Perhaps the mechanisms are so rusty that the bolts won't fire. Maybe the wooden cords used in the traps have long since been destroyed by bacteria. Chinese historian Zhou Zikun argues the contrary. He is one of the main experts of Qin Shiguang's burial site and says it's very possible that the traps are still active. He claims that the use of chrome in the figures may indicate that the traps received a similar protective treatment. He is sure that the artisans who built the traps installed crossbows that will fire if any thief tries to get inside. Even if the traps don't work, there is still the matter of the high deadly concentration of mercury inside the tomb. On-site measurements indicate dangerous levels which may come from another feature described in the scrolls. Imperial engineers created large rivers of quicksilver inside the tomb, so much that the level of mercury inside could be deadly for any unprotected adventurers. The Chinese government hasn't decided what to do with the hidden complex yet. The authorities will wait for some time because they believe that with the current technology, you can't get inside the tomb without destroying some of its contents. Dear Word Detective, I'm searching for the meaning of the expression out for a duck, as used in the first time Milne went to see his son play in a school cricket match. He was out for a duck, not scoring a single run. Ah yes, as the great existential philosopher Chico Marx once put it, why a duck? Why not a chicken? Of course in the film, Coconuts 1929, Chico has misunderstood Groucho saying viaduct, and then the dialogue then descends into Chico wondering why Groucho needs a ford to cross the river when he has a horse. But viaduct is about all we have time for at the moment. The relevant clip, like every other worthy bit of human history, can be found on YouTube. While you're there, check out some clips from the Marx Brothers' subsequent film, Duck Soup. The boys seem to have had a thing for ducks. But who among us, as John Kerry so famously is said to have said, does not enjoy ducks? The English language certainly does. The humble but endearing waterfowl we know as the duck has contributed dozens of colourful phrases to our speech. When we put our affairs in order, we say we have all our ducks in a row, as a mother duck leads her brood of ducklings. 
We shed adversity like water off a duck's back. We learn a new job, we hope, like a duck takes to water, meaning easily. When we greet a gloomy sky, we say, a good day for a duck, but regard sunshine as ducky, from the use of little duck and other similar terms as endearments. And if something is very easy, we declare it duck soup, the origin of which is, sadly, a complete mystery. Our modern English word duck comes from the old English duckin, which did not interestingly mean any sort of bird. Duckin was a verb meaning to plunge underwater suddenly, to dive or dip. The name duck for the fowl came from its habit of feeding by ducking, plunging its head into water. So when you have to duck your head when you're climbing into a compact car, don't blame the ducks for bad design. The phrase you cite as an example of out for a duck actually comes from an account of the strained relationship between A. A. Milne, author of Winnie the Pooh and other works, and his son Christopher Robin Milne, who starred in many of his father's stories. The fact that the younger Milne failed to score in that cricket match was evidently a source of great disappointment to both him and his father. Duck, as a slang for scoring no hits, or meaning a player who scores no hits, originated in cricket in the mid-19th century, but is now used in other sports as well. Duck in this sense is short for duck's egg, meaning the zero placed beside the player's name on the scoring sheets. It first appeared in schoolboy slang in Britain, where it is also used to mean nothing in a general sense. To finally score after a time at duck in cricket is to break one's duck, but if that doesn't happen and the game concludes with a player not having scored even once, the hapless soul is said to be out for a duck. In the US, we more simply refer to zero as a goose egg. And that story, of course, came from the worddetective.com website. And on to our feature story for this episode, and this one's entitled The Forgotten Fire, and it's written by Dan Gillis, and it comes from the www.daminteresting.com website. On October the 8th, 1871, the small Wisconsin logging town of Peshtigo was consumed by one of the most severe and woefully underreported fires in human history. After a hot and dry year, with a mere two inches of rain falling from July through September, churchgoers were praying for much-needed precipitation. The creeks had dried up, and the Peshtigo River, which many residents relied upon for transportation and water, was dangerously low. In the midst of that quiet Sunday evening, the tiny township was totally annihilated. Charred by a gigantic fire that engulfed the buildings, the countryside, and even the townsfolk themselves. Even today, the little known blaze holds the distinction of being the deadliest fire ever to occur in the US. More than 2,000 people were in the town on the morning of the fire. The population was swollen by crews of volunteers enlisted to battle the sporadic wildfires that were scattered throughout the surrounding areas. The smoke from these fires hung in the air, making breathing difficult. Shortly after 8.30pm, a dull roar caused alarm throughout the town. Flames from scattered wildfires had been whipped up into a blazing inferno by strong winds, placing a fire on a direct path towards Peshtigo. The firefighters and residents rushed to battle it with buckets of water, but quickly realised the gravity of the situation. They threw their buckets aside, headed to their homes to collect their families, and fled towards the relative safety of the Peshtigo River. 
Soon, a 2,000-degree Fahrenheit surge of flames overtook the small community. The extreme heat agitated the atmosphere into a flurry of superheated tornadoes and hurricane-force winds. A scorching hail of embers, white-hot sand and debris peppered the town. Rooftops were blown off houses and chimneys crumbled. As the fire approached the frantic citizens, they did everything they could in their desperate attempt to escape. Many jumped into wells, hoping the water would help protect them, only to be boiled alive. As people inhaled the superheated air, they dropped dead, their lungs charred. Men, women and children rushed for the bridge that spanned the Peshtigo River, but it had not escaped the fire's indiscriminate carnage. As the town people crossed the bridge, it succumbed to the abuse of the flames and collapsed in a deadly heap. Even more had rushed into the river itself, hoping the water would protect them from the looming inferno. But the fire bombarded the people with burning wreckage. The river was soon littered with lifeless bodies. The Peshtigo Eagle, a local newspaper, reported on the blaze. The frenzy of despair seized on all hearts. Strong men bowed like reeds before the fiery blast. Women and children, like frightened spectres flitting through the awful gloom, were swept like autumn leaves. Crowds rushed for the bridge, but the bridge, like all else, was receiving its baptism of fire. Hundreds crowded into the river, cattle plunged in with them, and being huddled together in rise general confusion of the moment, many who had taken to the water to avoid the flames were drowned. A great many were on the blazing bridge when it fell. The debris from the burning town was hurled over on the heads of those who were in the water, killing many and maiming others, so that they gave up in despair and sank to a watery grave. Superheated winds and tornadoes pull the heated air upward into the sky, allowing cooler air from Canada and the western United States to rush in to fill the vacuum. At first, these counterwinds fed more oxygen to the fire, until ultimately the sucking force was strong enough to cause a major change in wind direction. The fire was blown back onto itself, and it soon starved from a lack of fresh fuel. A mere 90 minutes had passed since the inferno's arrival, but the entire town of Peshtigo had been reduced to smouldering rubble. The following day, the much-needed rain arrived, soaking the blackened remains of the ruined town. In the aftermath of the disaster, news of a great fire in the Midwest was splashed in headlines across the nation. Tragically, none of the stories concerned Peshtigo. All attention was focused on one of the region's larger settlements, Chicago, which had suffered its own terrible blaze the same day, killing around 250. More than 1,200 souls had perished in the Peshtigo fire, although the true total will never be known due to the town's records being destroyed in the blaze. It destroyed every building in town, save one newly erected building with wood too green to burn. More than 1.25 million acres of forest and prairie were scorched before the winds died down and the fire burned itself out. And the fire caused millions of dollars in damage. Over 350 victims of the fire were buried together in a mass grave, their remnants too charred to be identified. The survivors spoke of their experiences, often recalling the sheer terror of the moment. It had been a very dry season, and I recall my mother telling us several times of the fire that for about two weeks before the sun was obscured, the clothes on the line looked so grey, and a kind of foreboding feeling that something was going to happen hung over the city. She said the fire came so suddenly that the only way she could describe it was that the heavens opened up and it rained fire. I think the fact that they were on the outskirts of the city was the only thing that saved them. My father helped pick up the dead and make rough boxes, as there were not enough caskets. He put as many as five of a family in one casket. They were just bones. They found people who were not burned at all, just suffocated. Another spoke of the horrific deaths experienced by the victims. 
By now the air was literally on fire, scattering its agony throughout the town. Men, women and children, clad in nightgowns and caps, shrieked with horror when they saw their loved ones burned alive. The entire town was a blazing inferno. There was only one escape. The river. Thousands of people pressed on with terror in their eyes, going further into the river, where they remained the next day and night. Families were separated. Little babies tried desperately to secure footing in the mucky river. Yet the river wasn't even safe. The swooping sparks and bits of fire dropped out of the sky, burning entire bodies with an instant sweep. News of the tragedy in Wisconsin took days to reach the public, being dwarfed by that of the Great Chicago Fire, a mere 240 miles south. With no relief supplies or aid en route to the town, the Governor of Wisconsin issued a special proclamation to divert aid from Chicago to Peshtigo. Relief poured in and soon over $150,000 was raised to rebuild the town. The fire was officially blamed on the severe drought conditions, but no one could be certain what sparked the destruction. The unusually dry year had effectively turned the countryside and much of the town into a giant expanse of kindling. The area's wetlands had completely dried up, leaving no moisture for the land. This provided a perfect condition for a colossal fire. One theory speculates that a meteor struck the countryside near the town, Whether historians using records and archives have offered a plausible theory for this. Meteorite falls in autumn are fairly common in the Upper Great Lakes region, occasionally sparking fires in dry fields and wooded areas. In recent years, these showers have left burning meteorite chunks scattered over the entire region, sometimes large enough to break through the roofs of homes. With such dry weather near Peshtigo, it would have been a perfect location for a fire to build up after one had set the ground ablaze. Although the true cause of the fire may never be known, it is certain that the 8th of October will never be forgotten. Though the township of Peshtigo survived in spite of the fire, it still bears the scars of one of the most horrific fires in history. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast website, www.origins.info. And if you visit the website, you can also click on the Facebook link and see the latest updates and information and other things that's going on in the world of the Origins and Mysteries Abound podcast. If you'd like to provide feedback for the show, it is greatly appreciated, either via email or via iTunes or other places like that on the internet. To bring the podcast to a close this week, a story from the blogs.smithsonianmag.com website, from their Past Imperfect series. And this one is entitled, The Grave Looked So Miserable, and is posted by Mike Dash. Picture the British countryside, and the chances are that you are picturing the unmatched beauty of the Cotswolds, in England's green heart, west of London. Picture the Cotswolds, and you have in your mind's eye a place like Hullapington, a handful of cottages, some thatched, but all clustered around a village green, a duck pond, and a church. The latter will most likely be ancient, six or seven hundred years old, and its graveyard will be filled with generation after generation of villagers. The same family names carved on tombstones that echo down the centuries, even as they weather into slabs of rock. Visit the church at Hullevington, though, and your eye will soon be drawn to one century-old grave, placed against a bank of ivy and remarkable, not merely for its pristine whiteness, but also for the identity of the young man buried there. James Idle, who died a couple of miles away, 
late in August 1914, was a soldier who had no family or friends in the village. Indeed, in all likelihood, he'd never even been there when he was killed guarding a railway in the very first month of the First World War. But Idol's funeral, held a few days later in the presence of a handful of men from his regiment and a gaggle of respectful villagers, inspired a remarkable response in one girl who witnessed it. Marjorie Dolman, who was only nine years old when she watched the soldier being carried to his grave. She is probably among the village girls pictured in the contemporary postcard shown above. Yet something about the funeral touched her so deeply that from then until almost the end of her life, and she died at the age of 99, she made it her unbidden duty to lay fresh flowers daily on private idol's grave. On the day of the funeral, records her fellow villager Dave Hunt, she picked her first posy of chrysanthemums from her garden and placed them at the graveside. Subsequently, she laid turf and planted bulbs and kept the headstone scrubbed. On Remembrance Sunday, she would lay red roses. In time, Dolman began to think of Private Idol as her own little soldier. As a teenager, she came to see it as her duty to tend a grave that would otherwise have been neglected. When the soldiers marched off, she recalled, not long before her own death, I can remember feeling sad because the grave looked so miserable. And even at age nine, she understood that Idol's family and friends would not be able to visit him. The boy soldier, contemporary sources give his ages 19, came from the industrial town of Bolton, in the north of England, 150 miles away. And had they wished to make the journey and been able to afford it, wartime restrictions on travel would have made it impossible. I suppose it was only a schoolgirl sweetness at the time, reminisced Dolman, who at a conservative estimate laid flowers at the grave more than 31,000 times. But as the years went by, the feelings of grief became maternal. James Idle's death took place such a long time ago, and so early in a cataclysm that would claim 16 million other lives, that it is perhaps not surprising that the exact circumstances of his death are no longer remembered in Hullabington. A little research in old newspapers, however, soon uncovers a story, which is both tragic and unusual. For Private Idol was not only one of the first British troops to die in the war, he also met his death hundreds of miles from the front line before even being sent to France. According to the Manchester Courier, published only a few miles from Idol's Bolton home, the boy died a sadly unnecessary death, cut to pieces by an express train while guarding a viaduct at Rodbourne, Malmesbury, not far from the spot where he was buried. A report of the inquest into the incident published a few days later in the Western Daily Press suggests his death was frankly puzzling. Another private in Idol's regiment, the 5th Royal North Lancashire Territorials who witnessed it, attributed the incident to the fact that he had new boots on, and these apparently caused him to slip. But another soldier saw things differently. At 12.30, midday, when Idol was proceeding down the line, Witness, Private Joseph Houghton, saw the Bristol to London express train approaching. Idle was on the same side as the train and facing it. Witness shouted to him a warning, but instead of stepping aside, Idle turned around and walked up the line. He seemed to have lost his head, for he took no notice of Witness's shouts. Unable to solve this mystery... The coroner, that is the medical examiner, recorded a verdict of accidental death. Further investigation, though, reveals one other oddity about the railway at the point where Idol died. A long stretch of dead straight mainline track, running through Halavington and on for several miles, allowed expresses to reach speeds of almost 100 miles per hour, suggesting that perhaps Idol, who cannot have been familiar with the district, badly underestimated how rapidly the train that killed him was approaching. Whatever the truth, a death that in normal circumstances would have been swept away and soon forgotten in the maelstrom of the First World War 
gained a strange and enduring nobility from a young girl's actions. Marjorie Dolman's lifetime of devotion was eventually recognised in 1994 when the British Army held a special service at the grave and commemorated Private Idol with four military honours. And when Marjorie herself died in 2004, she was laid to rest only a few yards from her little soldier in the same churchyard that she had visited daily since August 19. Those of you who have been listening to my podcast for some time may know that a while back I featured a number of tracks from an artist called Sora. I found her music first of all on the musicalley.com website and was quite captivated by it. Well, she has just released a new album and she sent me a copy which was very kind of her. And in return, I'd like to feature over the next few podcasts some of the tracks from that album. I've put a link to her website on the show notes, but I've also noted that her new album called Scorpion Moon is available on iTunes. So if you enjoy Sora's music, please go out and support her by buying her new album. She has no connection to my podcasts. I'm featuring her music out of courtesy because I really, really like it and it's great to have nice tracks to feature on my podcasts. So until we meet again next time, whether it be Mysteries Abound or The Origins Podcast, sit back, relax and enjoy the track entitled Mermaid Song from Sora. Bye for now, everyone. you to save me like I once saved you there are no saviors when one is not two my voice is all tangled in the depths of that sea
place your trust to my pain I'm not a dagger to taint the past with blood the moments with you Love is not love if it 